Father, we come before you as your people that you have called out of darkness and into the light by grace alone, not because of anything in us, not because we were smarter, more spiritual, or more righteous, but you chose us while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses. And for that, all we can say is thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've shown to us. Thank you for the blood of Christ that has freed us from every sin. Father, we pray that you would train our minds and hearts to think the way that you think and that we would um, align ourselves to the truth of your word that is the only infallible voice we have. In particular, Lord, I pray that you teach us what it means to be Christian family in the truest sense of that word Um, and where there are roadblocks or where there are misunderstandings, Lord, I pray that you would purge us maybe through agitation um, of thinking through your truth together. And I just pray this in the name of Jesus. I pray that your spirit would be here at work, um, impressing your truth upon hearts and minds and the collective of those who are gathered in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, we begin an exposition through the smallest of Paul's letters. In fact, it's not even a page long. There aren't chapters. There's just 25 verses. It's the little tiny book of Philemon. Uh, You might even have to open your, you know, table of contents to figure out where the book is. It's really tiny. Um, And I can't ever remember hearing a sermon out of it, and maybe you haven't either, but I have um, just planted my heart here for a number of months, and I just thought, you know, this is a a good place to be in this new year of 2022, trying to figure out what it means to be the body of Christ in the year 2022. Uh, Like I said, it's a carefully crafted word. It's personal to a man named Philemon, who is a fellow minister and a brother of of Paul's. Um, And I think it has something strong to say to us. Now, the reason I chose this book in one sense is because of the content of it. But in in another sense, it's because of the culture that we find ourselves in. By that, I mean, we know that we live in a polarized context, a polarized context where people often cancel each other out, or what we've come to know in the popular phrase, cancel culture, where, you know, people are willing to void each other, nullify, bring to an end, uh, censor, or punish through this thing we've called cancel culture. Now, in one sense, some of it is absurd to the point of laughable, right? Remember the story last year that broke, that uh, Hasbro decided that they were going to do away with Mr. Potato Head? They weren't going to do away with Potato Head. They were just going to drop the mister so as to kind of update him with an androgynous, genderless, no mister kind of name. In a sense, they were going to cancel Mr. Potato Head. I remember thinking, seriously, that's where we're at? We're going to cancel Mr. Potato Head? He was born in 1952. He's 70 years old, for crying out loud. I understand where it comes from, right? But apparently there was such a backlash that they decided, well, we're going to go ahead and retain Mr. Potato Head. We'll just offer another line of a genderless potato head. So for the time being, Mr. Potato Head has not been canceled, so far as I can tell. Now, that's a toy. But when it comes to people, we're talking about something much more serious. You and I both know from experience and readings and news stories that people's vocations have been terminated because of things they did in their teenage years. Canceled. I don't know about you, but I did a lot of really dumb stuff as a teenager. 
some of the stuff I've had to go back and ask forgiveness for. Like a person being judged decades later for something they did back in their burnt-out testosterone brain. Canceled. We're also witnessing, of course, the cancellation of historical figures. Many of, all of whom were imperfect in some way, shape, or form. Because they crossed the line that is now what we deem in our culture to be the unpardonable sin of racism or slave ownership. Which I think all of us would agree was a horrible plague in our early history of our country. But erased. The question for us as Christians is like, wait a second, what's the unpardonable sin? And is there any sin for which we should cancel somebody? That's the question. Why not cancel people for Example, committing adultery. Why not cancel people for speaking lies to the American people in a position of power? Why that particular sin? It seems a bit selective, canceling people out. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because I believe our culture, given its canceling policy, would have canceled Philemon the person addressed in this little tiny book from Paul. Why? Because Philemon owned a slave by the name of Onesimus. The whole reason this little tiny letter was written was because there was a problem in the church. So you have Paul, an apostle, a Christian man, uh, who gave birth to lots of churches in the ancient world. And you have this slave owner who's a Christian and a minister, named Philemon, and you have his runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. So there's three major players in this book. Paul the apostle, Philemon the slave owner, and Onesimus the runaway slave. Apparently, kind of reading between the lines, Onesimus ran away. Now, let me just say, for sake of clarity, we think that the hometown of Philemon and Onesimus was Colossae. Now, there's another book that Paul wrote called Colossians, written to that, and we think that they came from there because both Arch Archippus, which is mentioned in verse 2, and also Onesimus is referenced at the end of that book as these are among you. So this is probably in the town of Colossae, and somewhere along the way, Onesimus decided, I'm running away from my master, and he runs towards Rome. At least that's the best historical re reconstruction we can do. Where this runaway slave runs into, of all people, the apostle Paul, who's in prison there. And marvelously, this runaway slave comes to Jesus, is converted. So we have the Apostle Paul. Now we have a, a converted slave, and we have a Christian minister. Now, that creates kind of a tension, kind of an issue for the church. Now, let's, I just want you to think about this for a second. One of the things that Paul taught, the gospel that he preached, is that when a person comes into Christ... They come into a new community where the old value system is no longer in play. So we have this statement from the book of Colossians that is a book written to the hometown of Onesimus and Philemon where he says here there is not Greek and Jew. Those, those, those categories don't matter anymore in terms of value Circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. In other words, 
in the context of church family, they came together around the table. They would partake together of the, of the body and the blood of Christ with no differentiation. Everyone was on an equal footing in the kingdom of God. They were equal recipients of the promises of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the inheritance of God. So in the church context, in the kingdom, this little outpost we call the church family, those distinctions don't matter. But they still lived in a culture, ancient Roman culture, where slavery was institutionalized. Now, granted, slavery in ancient Rome is substantively different than slavery early in the history of our country, but it's still slavery. The question is what to do then, because now they're a part of a culture that utilizes slavery where it's approved and institutionalized. At the same time, now you're part of a church where that doesn't matter anymore. You see the problem? What Paul doesn't do in this book is he doesn't cancel Philemon. He doesn't ostracize him. He does not condemn him. Rather, what we see, and that's the beauty of this little tiny letter. We see him deal with the situation where there's a runaway converted now Christian slave and a, and a Christian master. And, of course, he's the apostle. He deals with it, with it in a way that moves the needle north in terms of the slavery issue so that there might be growth and healing. At the same time, he does it in such a way that doesn't tear apart the family. It's brilliant for that, that, that reason. It's like, how do you create a, a, a Christian culture family where you're able to deal with real issues in a way that allows for growth and healing relationally and personally without tearing everything apart, which is exactly what cancel culture does. I think this is part of the wonder of this little tiny book is it shows us how to be the family, where we can help each other grow and move along without ripping it apart, or what I'm going to call a gospel culture. You see, it's entirely possible to be orthodox in our confession. We believe that we're saved by grace alone. But in our culture, how we treat each other, to be the opposite. And we have to strive to be both. It's like we confess that we're saved by grace alone, but we want to treat each other with graciousness and self-sacrifice and patience to grow, you see? So, how do you resolve an issue in a church which our culture would say, that's a bad man? This little book is the answer. And we're just going to look at the first three verses this morning, and I want to call this the requirements of a gospel culture. And I hope you'll hear the spirit and words of the Apostle Paul and go, Maybe I need to move the needle north too, and I need to make some adjustments in my life and how I approach this thing called church family. So, first, let me just read the first three verses. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. This is one of the few letters that he does not call himself an apostle. And I think the reason being is that he does not want to come at Philemon from the top down, but as a prisoner. And Timothy, our brother, so Timothy is somewhere in the vicinity of Paul, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
These are the first introductory words of this letter. And they are full of love. You'll notice the first thing that Paul does here and the first requirement of a gospel culture is, is the simple thing, a commitment to the priority integrity of family. Mind you, I don't mean family like mom, dad, and siblings. I'm talking about the church family. The New Testament's so filled with familial language of fathers and sons and sisters and, and children, spiritual family. And the first thing we notice here is in addressing the slave owner, he speaks in language that's saturated with family. So we have, he refers to Timothy, our brother, our plural. Timothy's not just an acquaintance or some kind of a distant dude. He's our, he's Philemon, he's your brother, he's my brother, we, our brothers. And he refers to Apia, who in all likelihood is Philemon's wife. Addresses her too as our sister. Archippus is probably his grown son who is also participating in the ministry, but part of the family which Onesimus would have come from as a slave. And of course, refers to the church that's in their home. This is not just to be a letter for Philemon, but it has a wider audience. So it's personal, it's familial, and yet it's also communal because he wants the church to learn from this situation that's going on with a runaway slave converted now. What are we going to do? And, of course, referring to then our father. So it's filled with language of family. And no matter what the problems are that Paul addresses in any of the churches, he refers to them as family. It's to say, no matter what happens in this situation with the struggle, you need to understand something. I am your brother. You are my brother. She is my sister. We are family. He places a priority on the family of God. Now... I want to push that in two directions really quickly that should, again, maybe agitate a little bit. One is it's striking to me how much of the New Testament, if not all of the New Testament, is completely unconcerned with deconstructing and reforming pagan secular politics. Jesus wasn't concerned about reforming institutional slavery in the Gospels. Paul, in his letters, he was concerned about the church. It's, 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 it's hauntingly silent about political frustrations of the time, pagan slavery. Why is that when... In all our cultural context, and I'm not speaking for everybody, I'm speaking just for some maybe, Christians are all about the frustrations with points of disagreement with politics with very little emphasis on what about the family of God. Why is such the priority of the church, of the family, of Philemon and Onesimus, as opposed to just trying to institution or dismantle political structures. Now, the church would go on to have that effect on Roman society. But that wasn't the primary emphasis. And why is that? Have you ever thought about it? The secular world, or back then the pagan world, was shrouded in darkness, driven by the flesh. 
But Paul knew, as we should know, the one place on planet Earth where there's any hope of seeing people transformed from haters to lovers, from people who are selfish to self-sacrificing, people who genuinely want what's best for each other, is in the context of church family, given birth by the gospel of Jesus and inhabited by the Spirit of Christ. That is, the church is supposed to be a, a visible, tangible demonstration of the power of the gospel to unite so that people can see, wait, wait, wait a second. How is it that Onesimus and Philemon can come to the same table and drink from the same cup and the same bread and call each other brother? To which there's one answer. Christ. And the world goes, wow, there's something going on here. That's why the priority's there. And why there is to be a priority of family. Brother, sister, I am not going anywhere. Do you feel that way about church? It's a lot easier, of course, when you're in a house church of 10, which is why, by the way, small groups are important. We talked this last week about we, we want more than anything to invest in the relational dynamics of our church because we believe it's, it matters. It should matter to all of us, family. So it's a priority. This family is a priority to Paul, a priority of the New Testament writers. But here's another direction. Let's push it. In terms of dealing with struggles, unfortunately, and many of us probably know this to be true very painfully, there is oftentimes embedded in church culture tolerable sins and intolerable sins. And the tolerable ones, we're willing to link arms and go, hey, I'm here with you. So if a person says, hey, I'm really struggling with pride today, it's like, hey, I will pray for you, brother. I'll call you. Just what can I do? I'm struggling with anxiety. Well, that's, man, here's a, here's a, here's a, a promise from the Psalms to help you out. But when, I'm just going to agitate, when a person says, I'm struggling with pornography. Or, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. All too often, wait, that kind of crossed the line in my heart, and though we wouldn't do it physically, you kind of back up. Make sure I don't trip. <laughs> and we kind of close the door. It's kind of a soft way of canceling. In the moment of need, uh, brothers to be a brother and say, you know what? I'm here for you regardless of the struggle. Because as I know it, there's only one unpardonable sin, and I'm not going to get into that right now, and it's not that. That doesn't mean, by way of qualification, that we affirm people who are living in hard-hearted re rebellion. But even a Christian who's turned away and is living in hard-hearted rebellion still needs the love of discipline, not cancellation. But a person who's honest about their struggles, this is where I'm at, and I don't want to be here, and I need help. That's where family, a priority of family, is I will always be here for you as your brother or as your sister. I don't cancel people. You don't cancel people in the family of God. Hear that? That's what Paul's doing. He's going, Philemon, guess there's, there's an issue. 
we're doing this together. It's a priority of family. And I think if a church was like this, it would be wonderfully refreshing. Two, there's this constancy of love and affection that's expressed that I think also we could learn from. You notice he calls him our beloved fellow worker, beloved. He takes time to remind him that I don't just like you. I don't just tolerate you. I love you. Later on in the letter, he's going to refer to Onesimus as my very heart. My heart is so tied to this converted slave that he's my very heart and I'm going to send him back. It's just filled with affection and filled with love. That is a a sign and I think a necessity of a, a healthy gospel culture. We don't just assume we love each other, but we actually express that love in ways of affection. And if you don't know this, I'm a hugger. I know some people aren't. And it gets enormously awkward when someone doesn't want to hug and I give them a hug. But tangible expressions. I mean, Paul used to say greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, he did. And you know, in Russia, they take that literally. I found out the hard way. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is filled with affection and love. You know, there was a time at Promise Keepers, I remember, my dad and I were there. We only went to one. And um, the guy up front was talking about how fathers and sons don't share, share affection and love for each other. And so he said, everybody who has a father and son here, why don't you turn to each other right now and say, I love you, son, or I love you, father. And, you know, it's one of those awkward moments. And you know, look, and I'm like, my dad's like, we, we say that all the time, don't we? I said, we do, Dad. But apparently that's not always the case. The expressions of love and affection. A person who's struggling in a situation where there's tension, and there will always be tensions in the body because there will always be struggles in the body. Everyone in here has something they're, they're dealing with. Are you honest about it? Do you feel the freedom to be honest about it? Or do you feel like somehow if you're honest about your struggle, you're going to be put in a penalty box? On time out, people aren't going to love me. For people to grow, they have to know they're loved, and that love is going to be constant, and to express it, as Paul does, my beloved fellow worker, beloved. So this is years ago now. My daughter, middle child, she's probably 10. She, she tells us, I don't want to live here anymore. I want to live it. And it was another family in church. I'm like, what? And she was very sullen and depressed. And it was not the normal, happy-go-lucky girl that we knew her to be and now still know her to be. And so we were trying and trying to figure out, like just trying to get it out of her. What is the problem? And finally, she spilled the beans. A couple of years before, we had this family dog. It was, we didn't get it as a puppy. It was two years old when we got it. We, his name was Sanford. And, uh, and that dog ended up being mean, quite frankly. It bit some of our friends, and it had a, a, an unholy hatred of blonde females. <laughs> Dead serious. Like, talk about prejudice, this dog. And it went on for quite a while, and finally my wife and I realized, you know what? Don't judge. We made the decision. We had to put the dog down. Couldn't give a dog like that away because it was just mean. So we put the dog down. We didn't tell our kids that. 
We're like, well, you know, without lying, it's like we had to send Sanford away. <laughs> had to get rid of him. What we didn't know is psychologically, our daughter had distrust because of that. And I don't know exactly if it was because she thought, you got rid of the dog, are you going to get rid of me too? And trying to remind her, this is like, listen, I get it, pets are important. A pet dies and the family cries. 100% get that. Pets are loved. But there's a massive, incalculable difference in my mind, biblically and experientially, between a pet and a daughter. We said, you'll always be our daughter. Nothing will ever change that. And guess what? She stayed. <laughs> I'm just saying, you have to, we have to be certain and constant in our love for each other and being able to express that this is the reality. I'm not just going to let you assume it. Paul expressed it. To be able to express it. The opposite of that kind of constant affection, love, willingness to work through and address difficult situations with love and gentleness, to me is not hate. The opposite of love is not hate. Sometimes you hate the people you love the most because they hurt you the worst. The opposite of hate in my thinking is a judgmental, self-righteous spirit. One that comes down at another with a spirit of self-righteousness and condemnation. That is devastating to family. That is devastating to Christian relationship when there's that judgmental spirit. When you're willing to cancel somebody because they crossed a line you don't think deserves forgiveness. You know, I think one of the reasons why Jesus was so hard on the judgmental, self-righteous spirit, he was harder on them than he was on the sinners because it so damages humanity. You know, he says, Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be what? Judge. I think a really good alternative translation would be cancel not lest you be canceled. If you've received mercy, give mercy. Don't cancel one another out. I was, uh, I have been, how do I say this? Agitated by something that Paul Tripp wrote in a book called Lead, where he is talking about the importance of having a culture of grace in a church where people can actually be honest, maybe not with everybody, but with people who can help you, who know you, who have a relationship with you, who will say, I love you no matter what, I'll be your brother no matter what. He wrote this. He said, I write convinced that we, the community of believers, can be the most honest community on earth because there is nothing that cannot, that could be known, revealed, or exposed about us that has not been covered by Christ's atoning work. Does he just cover some sins? Or all of them? And if we really believe that, there's no reason why we can't be judiciously, discerningly, wisely honest with each other. That's a gospel culture. So, a commitment to the priority of family, Christian family. We don't give up on each other. The importance of expressing and maintaining this Christian love, despite the struggles. And a third and final one that we see in this text. 
there is this affirmation of fruitful service. Notice he calls him a fellow worker, my beloved fellow worker, worker in the gospel, worker in the ministry, a worker in the church. And if Archippus' son, also the family that owned Onesimus, is referred to as a fellow soldier, that is a soldier in the gospel doing the work of God. So he's affirming and authenticating the fact that God is doing a good work through him, despite the situation. This kind of flies in the face of what people often do in terms of demonizing somebody and saying, you know what, I'm going to vilify you because I think you're evil. Now, nothing that you've ever done is good. That's, again, that's a cultural reality. Somebody blows it, and we're like, done. In the past, in history, as if the failure negates all of the good stuff. Is that right? It can't be right. Listen, the truth of the matter is, if our service to Jesus has to come from a perfect heart and a perfect life, guess what? None of our service matters. You look at the biblical figures, you know, Noah had an issue with alcohol. Abraham had an issue with lying. David had an issue with committed adultery, committing adultery and, 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 and conspiracy to commit murder. If everybody in the Bible is canceled because of sin, there'd be one person left. And yet, David is commended as having a heart after God's a man of faith, and so is Abraham. And they did do things, that is, God did things through these men that have changed the world. We don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There is this cool affirmation. It's like, listen, there's an issue we got to deal with with Onesimus, but I want you to know you're being used of God as imperfect as you are. You know how encouraging that is? If you feel like you have to be perfect or you have to, maybe not perfect, most of us know we're not perfect, but I got to be at a B plus level to matter. Who in here has a B plus? Most of us probably feel like we're C minus, C plus. Sometimes it drips down to a B, maybe once in a while up to an A. Never A plus. You see what I'm getting at? A, 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 a gospel culture, a culture of grace is when we're committed to the family, we don't give up on each other. Two, we commit ourselves to a constancy of love and willing to, to express it. And at the same time, authenticate that God is using imperfect people. Thanks be to God. Because I'll tell you what, I'll be the first one to quit if I have to be perfect. And my wife will tell you. I am not perfect. So again, why is this important? It's because of who we are and our part, the part we play in the world. We, as the family of Jesus, are to be a visible, tangible representation of the power of the gospel to change people. Something very different than the world. People who don't cancel each other out. Think about this just for a second in terms of the gospel and the big why. If Paul tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, what that means is every one of us deserves to be canceled. 
Because if all have sinned and the wages of sin is cancellation, which is what death is, then every one of us deserves to be voided out, nullified, brought to a definitive end in judgment. But God is not the canceling kind of God. That is, he is gracious and he is loving, and we know the story of Jesus. He came, he descended, he came in human flesh for the, the singular mission of doing this, of hanging on a cross and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that was, that moment? That was a cancellation moment when the God the Father turned his back on the Son because Jesus willingly said, Father, cancel me instead of them. Cancel me instead of them so they can live. That's the heart of God. He is not a canceling God towards his people. So we're not a canceling people towards each other. Just let this final verse of that I'm going to present, taken again from Colossians, the letter that's written to this hometown where Philemon and where Onesimus come from, where he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How and where did he cancel our sins? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus was nailed so we could go free. That's why in our church culture, we don't cancel. If you haven't missed the application, let me just remind you. If we are to be a people who radiate the gospel of Jesus Christ in our relationships, we, there has to be a priority in Christian family. We have to build relationships with each other. There has to be a commitment to show and express love, not just when people are doing well, but also when they're doing horribly. And there has to be this affirmation that God uses imperfect people. That has to be a practice in our church family. And the second one may be a little more direct. It may be that God has brought somebody to your mind, a name of somebody in the church family who, has, who you have, for all practical purposes, closed the door to. I recognize we can't be at peace with all men if they don't want to live at peace. And I recognize there are times when emotions run hot and you have to let things settle out. But at some point, there should be a moment where you're like, you know what, I know what the Lord wants of me. We don't give up on family. We continue in love. And we affirm that God does good stuff through imperfect people. And maybe you need to make a phone call to practice this. I know this is hard. But what in the Christian life is easy? And who hasn't given us the grace to be able to do that for the sake of the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ? through his church. Amen? Hopefully I haven't agitated you too much, but the Lord will do his work in and through us. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness. Remind us of who you've called us to be. Empower us to be the people you've called us to be. Allow us to live out in real time the confession of our mouth, that we believe in a gospel of grace. We pray that you'd help us to live a gospel of grace for the sake of the world for the sake of salvation, for the sake of the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. Amen.